If you like this show, I have two requests. Please share it with somebody you think might like it. And also make sure that they know what a podcast is and how to consume it, either on iTunes or Transistor or Spotify. And the second request is, I know you know somebody that would make a great interview. All these conversations are friends of mine, either on social media, LinkedIn, or actually in person. And if you know someone with a great story, please let me know. I'd love to talk to them. I don't know. I'm making this up as I go. What are your qualifications? Ah, well, I attend Juilliard. I'm a graduate of the Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively. I have people skills. I am good at dealing with people. You just don't know when to give up, do you? I'm going to do this all day. The Matt Sodnicker Podcast. Hey, welcome to the podcast. This is Matt Sodnikar. Thank you to everyone who's been listening and commenting. It really means a lot. I appreciate it. Uh, with me today, finally, is a longtime friend and fellow. Uh, we met at SBDC, right? That's where we met? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wendy Wimpy. She's with STEM Generation and a uh, really cool story and a cool business. So, Wendy, finally, welcome. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Matt. I really appreciate your time and appreciate you making this happen. It's yeah, great to be here. And I'm glad you went for a ride on Tuesday. I'm glad we pushed this. <laughs> <laughs> it was much needed. <laughs> Just yeah. for everybody listening, uh, Wendy and I were supposed to do this Tuesday, or sorry, Wednesday afternoon. And she was saying that she's already in her bike shorts and hadn't gone for a ride in three months and her day kind of got out of control. And it's like, Go for a ride. Let's do this podcast tomorrow. That's way more important. <laughs> so how was the ride? It was good. It was good. It's, um, it helps me keep, keep things in, in perspective for sure. Yeah. So. Well, let's jump into it. STEM generation. Tell me the origin story. Tell me what it does, the impact it's had. I, I, I know I've got some familiarity from our experience together, but how did it become a thing? Well, it's first, uh, it became a thing actually through my kids and inspired um, through my experience with my kids together with um, other kids at other schools around science fair. And um, so my background is I was a research professor at Mines and had been involved in science fairs at local schools and the regional fair and state fair. And um, so I had, uh, my kid science fair was actually gonna go away, which was which is not uncommon because there's high turnover and who um, puts the science fairs on. And it's often a parent doing that. So I was asked to, um, to help keep the science fair alive at my kid's school. So I, jumped in and like most things I do, I, I made a whole thesis out of it and like completely built out a whole entire program around it. <laughs> and uh, and then a teacher from a nearby Title I school after that fair had asked if I would help reproduce it at her fair, at her school. 
So I just reworked the material and, and gave them an entire science fair with all the resources and communication pieces and, and the whole structure. And uh, after the fair, a couple of weeks after the fair, the teacher I was working with and supporting reached out and had shared that her most at-risk student in her class had come the next morning and had declared he was gonna be an engineer when he grew up. And he had changed his behavior in class and he was focused. He had, he had something he had connected with that he had never connected with before. And it was never really within his realm, within his world of reach. So, um, so that was a pretty uh, landmark moment for me <laughs> because it was, it was pretty easy to do for me. And so, you know, having been involved in science fair from every angle, you know, as a parent, um, as a scientist, as a judge and organizing fairs, I could really see so many um, challenges and opportunities around that. And really, I, th I saw science fairs as kind of like the low hanging fruit for entering um, and addressing some of the biggest societal problems that we see today, and that's inequities. So, so that's really the origin. So the nonprofit STEM generation addresses inequities and early STEM learning opportunities that fall squarely along socioeconomic lines. So that is, that's the origin. How was that moment when that teacher told you about that kid that wanted to become an engineer yeah it was an aha moment for me it was like wow you know um it was um yeah it was definitely an aha moment for me because I had seen and was fully aware of the imbalance in support for kids with different um, support structures at home. So I, for example, you know, supported my kids and they had a phenomenal science fair project, right? <laughs> and then the kids- We built had... a supercomputer. <laughs> exactly. And so it was just so unfair, right? Like my kids are competing. First of all, you know, kids shouldn't be competing at this age. You know, there's a whole bunch of research behind that that's similar to the whole idea of not having kids compete in sports, you know, having, you know, until they're in middle school, because then it takes away from their growth and, uh -huh. and just inspires that competition without growth. So the same thing, um, the same thing applies here. So there's just, um, so seeing how easy it was to spark an interest and help create that identity of, hey, I can actually do this. This is for me, it was really huge for me because um, it, it was so easy, <laughs> you know? And I had built so, I had, I had dedicated so, so, so much time around um, building out that support structure that I realized, hey, I could easily take this to as many schools as the want to have it, right? So I ended up supporting 
three schools for six years, just as a volunteer in that capacity. And then started, uh, I ditched my whole career to get this going as a nonprofit. <laughs> That's wonderful. You know, it's that old, uh, it's a cliche and it's a cliche because it's true. But if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. And it, it to me doesn't sound, I don't want to use the word stumbled into it because uh, just knowing the curriculum at Mines and being a geologist, or sorry, uh, were you a geologist? What, what were you? A geophysicist. Geophysicist. Probably pretty structured in everything that you do. <laughs> and um, yeah, it just, and I love when passion and intent and curiosity just gel into something that becomes a business or something that can help other people. It's really cool. Yeah. You know, one thing I struggled with was, you know, as a scientist, um, the impact of what, what I was doing just felt like so far out. Right. Mm. Like, and, and this was something I could do today and change I could change, you know, 30 kids' lives in just a short period of time and bam, it's done, right? I mean, there's, there's of course, a whole component of continuing to work with that child to continue to build that identity, but it was just so easy and fast, you know? <laughs> so, um, so being able to make that impact right away and the potential for making that impact on so many kids' lives in such a big way that it was such a different, it was just so much more fulfilling. I, 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 I miss many things about my previous, you know, the previous chapter of my life, but, uh, but this is, this definitely fills my bucket. It feels good. You've, you've made a difference, right? And you've, so you've seen a need and you've, <clears throat> excuse me, you've helped somebody that, that needed it. And at the end of the day, I think that's what it's all about. Yeah. So, you know, with the kids uh, from these high need schools, and when I say high need schools, you know, there's, there are schools that serve low income communities, whether it's a title one school or not that there are these high need schools that don't have the resources, you know? And I saw that the very first day that I visited this teacher at this school, this Title I school that I helped the very first time. And what is Title I? What's that designation? So Title I is a um, federal um, uh, qualification for extra support because of the lack of resources in that school. And that lack of resources is around the student's um, poverty level. So, uh, so that, so to qualify for, for Title I status, a certain percentage, and that percentage depends upon, I think the district, I actually am not entirely, because I go by what's called free and reduced lunch. Free and reduced lunch is a federal program where um, students who live in a household that makes a certain 
um, combined income qualify for free and reduced lunch. So that it's a national uh, program. So one thing, so I will, so I, I, I will have to say to qualify in Colorado for a student to qualify for free and the free and reduced lunch program, to qualify for the a free lunch, for example, for a family of three, the combined income, total combined income for a family of three has to be um, below on the order of, I don't know the exact number, but it's on the order of $27,000 a year. To qualify for a reduced price lunch, it's on the order of uh, $38,000 a year. I haven't looked at the recent numbers. Across Colorado, 41%, this is 2018 numbers. In 2018, 41% of Colorado public school students qualify for free and reduced lunch. So that's, you know, 40, when you think about 41% of the, the population is living on at least less than $38,000 a year, it's pretty astonishing. And in, in, the Denver, in Denver Metro, that's 69%. 69% of Denver public school students in 2018 qualify for free and reduced lunch. So when you think about when we go out, go out for dinner and in uh, Denver, we have our meetings downtown, you would never imagine that 69% of the population is living in that kind can even possibly survive on that kind of income level. Well, and I've watched the home prices go up. <clears throat> I just sold a house a couple of years ago and the appreciation of that. And if income's not tracking, yeah, it, that's astounding. Yeah. Sorry, so, I cut you off. Thank you for the, the clarification. I think those stats are very important to your mission and those definitions, but you were talking about going into a, a high need school. So I wanted to yeah. get you back to that story. Thank you. Yeah. So, um, so at this high need school, they just have low resources. So, so when I met with this teacher at this title one school, um, it was just really obvious walking down the hall, you know, they didn't have smart boards in their classroom. Like my kids, they didn't have a STEM lab. They didn't have after-school activities, you know, these after-school learning programs that my kids had. And they're both public schools, my kids' school and this school, they were both public schools. They were not even five miles apart, but the school had a fraction of the resources that my kids' school had. And that, largely comes in through the, the parents, the, the community support. So um, my kids were, were in, a school, uh, in a school that served a more affluent community and the, the support for that school just came pouring in. And at this other Title I school, they just didn't have those resources that were coming in. So. Yeah, and I look at the, the remote learning, right? And the, I think my Xfinity bill was 97 bucks a month 
<clears throat> and I've been so fortunate throughout um, careers to either have computers provided or um, being able to purchase one refurb from some friends and then everything else. Then you start adding up food, electricity, things like that. And then you just tell parents, oh, we're just going to work from home. You know, for you and me running a, a Zoom recording podcast like this, oh, all right, no big deal. It's a minor inconvenience. But <clears throat> if you're already putting this extreme pressure financially on schools, and then now there's this technology barrier that has a major financial impact, I don't know how these families could do it. Yeah, and this is especially true for rural schools is the access to um, internet is not as available. So um, kids in, in rural school districts um, are, are feeling that the most. But, but yeah, so the, the number, we're compiling the numbers on the changes in free and reduced lunch from 2018 till now, those numbers will be out here in a few months. But, um, but the poor just recently are getting even poorer, right? These, these kids um, from these low-income communities are impacted so much more than, than their peers. So, um, so for us, this was, it's interesting because I have people ask, you know, gosh, so how are you doing, you know, as a nonprofit, because so many nonprofits are struggling. Well, prior to the pandemic, it was a real struggle to really help people understand the problem of this inequity and opportunity and the, the, in this inequity that really stems from it's a socioeconomic inequity. And it, it just wasn't getting much attention. A lot of the nonprofits that um, I that I know of, they that are STEM focused, they focus more on, you know, just in general, broadening the um, the access to innovative programming, STEM programming. But are not necessarily strictly focused on supporting these high, this, the students at these high need school. So since the pandemic, creating, really conveying the message and the problem around our nonprofit has actually been so much easier because it's in, right in front of everybody's faces right now. Um, and there's an awareness around that. And school districts have experienced unprecedented budget cuts so for, I, I won't name the, the district, but one of the largest districts in Colorado, for example, shared that um, they had to cut all support for hands-on STEM materials to, the, to their, their schools this year because their budgets, their budgets have been slashed. So, um, so many districts are facing 10 to 15% budget cuts um, in a very, very, uh, and having to adjust on, on, on a dime in a lot of ways, but in one way is, you know, just financially, how are they going to keep the programming? Um, what, what programming is, what programs have to be cut? Well, and as a recovering engineer, I like to say, <laughs> because I, I, I went to school for 
uh, electrical and software engineering. And while I'm happy that I don't do that level of work anymore, the skills that I learned and I was working on a bike last night and trying to <clears throat> diagnose a problem. And I still put things sequentially and then there's problem solving that applies to so many other factors of my existence that having that critical thinking, having that ability to evaluate options and data. And even if it's you know, at an elementary school level, like is red better, is blue better? You don't have to get into, you know, statistical <laughs> you know, regression and things like that. But those skills I firmly believe would serve everybody better if they had just some critical thinking that would help them evaluate, you know, whether to take a job or buy a house or do this or do that. And I think, I firmly believe that that comes from me being in a scientific focused program and looking at things like um, hypotheses and testing those and rather than just accepting, Oh, well, this is how it is. Well, let's prove it. <laughs> yeah. I'm really glad you shared that. Um, and that is actually, um, that is really what we are teaching the, the kids in this program. Leadership skills, problem solving skills, critical thinking, you know, what often is referred to 21st century or leadership skills. So, um, and what you see is that a lot of, it's, it's a pretty large number of um, STEM trained professionals that come out of college actually enter different jobs, different careers, completely different careers. And that's exactly what a lot of research shows is that the skills that you develop, um, whether it's as an engineer or a scientist, but those problem solving and critical thinking skills and um, you know, evaluation skills really span across any discipline and really can really makes for a more robust um, work culture. So even if students don't decide to become engineers, giving that foundation of this is how you critically evaluate a problem and you, this is how you get to the core of a problem and peel away those layers and find what's really at the core of the problem. And that these are, this is how you evaluate different options for solving the problem. Yeah, those are, that's what scientists and engineers do very well, but they don't have to stay in STEM to use those skills and, and being able to use those skills across other disciplines is, is just really powerful. And so that, that's what we're teaching. And those are those skills are what are needed in in social sciences, for example, or you know, re really in everyday life, or you know, just creating being able to evaluate a situation and um, a problem in in your community, and being able to take a step back and identify that problem and what somebody can do about that problem empowers them to actually 
take action, right? So, so yeah. So I'm glad you shared that because because I, I think it's on the order of like 30% of, of um, the kids who come out of college actually enter different careers, but that's okay, right? They've, they, right. that's great. They're bringing it into another facet of the work workforce. And that's, that's great. And I think also understanding that you can just look around your house and almost everything somebody imagined and it could be a sofa or a coffee mug or a computer or even zoom right somebody sat down and sketched this up and drew it out and as i started when i was younger i didn't really have that imagination that things could be created and that's, that started giving me a different perspective that the world I think was kind of magical and that anybody across any, any place in the world could come up with some cool idea and get it out there. And it just, and again, with the scientific side and the, the engineering and the creating and the, the troubleshooting and the prototyping, I was like, it made me just think that the world is a really cool place and that I could create something too. Yeah, that's, you know, that, again, I'm, I'm glad you shared that because that's actually, it's a really important component of helping kids to create that identity of I can. I, I can be a, a scientist if I want or an engineer is helping them to see that science and engineering is behind everything, you know, whether it's what you smell or what you see or what you feel or, you know, the colors in your pencil box or, you know, the paper that you're writing on, there's science behind all of that. And that's what we challenge the students to really explore. And so even if it's, how does your toilet work? <laughs> right? <laughs> like it's just this magical thing. It just goes swoosh, right? But how does that work, right? Um, you know, just really simple things. It, and creating that connection for them is, is really key. Because when you work with things that kids have already touched and felt and seen and experienced and try to um, challenge them to explore the science or engineering behind those things, that's, that's a, a really great starting point for creating those identities and feeling confident in their ability. So what we do is we take that approach. We use very simple materials. Often people are, the reaction from adults is on the order of, you know, I've never heard this comment, but like, really, are you kidding me? <laughs> right? <laughs> so we use simple things like bouncy balls and, and cars and things like that. Some, so we choose materials that kids have at their fingertips um, to help them explore the science behind those things. So, 
So I, I think people are sometimes surprised, like, you know, where's the solar car or where's the, you know, these more high tech things. But when people, what people don't realize that many elementary school teachers don't have um, a framework for really effectively teaching science or especially STEM. Students are tested primarily on English language arts, math. And so it's not until fifth grade in Colorado that, that students are tested on science. And even hmm. so it's a very small percentage of their scoring. So until fifth grade, science is, is, is not always taught. And so for, and, and actually the, the reason that's important to, the reason it's important is that students and particularly girls begin to start creating those identities of whether they're capable or incapable in STEM as early as second to third grade. Hmm. So if they're not being taught STEM, then they're not in elementary school, then they're not having that opportunity to create those identities. And those identities really become solidified in middle school. And so if those, the, if they don't solidify those identities by middle school, then often they just fall out of, they fall out of interest. So it's really critical to give students those opportunities to explore STEM in elementary school, but that has to be done by creating a support structure for the teachers because the teachers don't always have very good resources at their fingertips. And often if science is taught, often it's just worksheets pulled off the internet that are not, pro that are not building kids skills or just making them look up, you know, terms or, you know, they do some research, but it's different than learning the skills, those problem solving skills. And it's a very different way of teaching science. And that's what we do is we focus on the skills and less on the content. So, um, so by the end of the program, the students have already um, gone through three projects. And by the end, they have developed every component of that last project themselves. So. Wow. One question that popped into my mind is, how do you think science affects an individual's view of failure? Gosh, another great question. Um, you know, um, scientists, and so this is another thing we can commu communicate. So, it, um, you know, scientists fail all the time, right? Part of it. It's a huge it's, part of it. It's a very important, very important part. You're like, so you, I, I wish I could, I wish I knew the exact quote, but there's actually a, um, um, I'm not going to even think about it right now, but anyway, um, you, you, scientists and engineers learn as much from their failures. You have to fail. You have to, you have to just take that first step to, because you're, you're, if you're a scientist or engineer, you're generally doing something that maybe isn't, hasn't been done before. Right. Or it has to be done a little bit differently. And anytime you're stepping out of what's been done already, there's always a chance for failure. And it's very likely there's going to be failure along the way. And so 
being able to be resilient and say, okay, I failed, but hey, I learned this. Look at what I learned about that. And this is how I can do it differently. It's, it's, a, it's an important skill of resilience that again, students get through doing science. And, and that's actually another challenge in a lot of curriculum, a lot of science curriculum or STEM curriculum focuses on the end product of, of the student's work. You know, mm -hmm. Did they get it right? Well, that's not how science works. It's, you know, it's what did you learn, right? What, what were your failures? And, and if you could do it over, what would you do differently? That's that process. So, um, so it's important to teach kids that failure is part of the process. And that's awesome, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, because that means, okay, that means you need to step back and think about, you know, okay, how can you do it differently? And there's a whole learning process with that. But also that failure, um, so I completely lost my train of thought, but anyway, I looked away and I shouldn't have. <laughs> I'm glad, I'm glad this is not live. I'm glad this is not live. But anyway. Yeah, and I think it comes back to resilience too and separating outcomes from personal and that uh, an experiment can go wrong, something can explode or fail or break. And it's not me that failed, it was this thing. And help, you know, help just learning the yeah, the resilience behind that and that mistakes are okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that, yeah, that mistakes are important in order to advance something. Like if you're just following a recipe, you still might make some mistakes, but when you're trying to advance something and do something new, you have to be okay with failure. You have, because that's just, it's a given, you know? So um, that's all part of innovation. I remember watching 60 Minutes maybe a year or two ago and the the kid that created the <clears throat> ocean sweeper, the boat that goes out and sucks up all the plastic trash. And the reporter asked him something to the effect like, well, it doesn't work as good as you thought it was or but something like that. <laughs> and I just said so that the question about failure, I just remember thinking, this kid created a boat that pulls ocean out of the trash. I don't think anybody's done that before. And this is version 1.1. And of course it's not going to be perfect. And just the, the question struck me so, I wasn't offended by it, but it was just mind boggling that, well, nobody's done this before. Why would it be perfect? Yeah. <laughs> And that's the thing is teaching kids is getting, especially during science fair, often, you know, as kids just hop on the internet. I mean, there are thousands of science fair projects on, on the internet that you, they can just follow the recipe. But what we need to be teaching kids is, okay, you can start with that, but go beyond. Add what beyond that, what is something about that that you're curious about to really make it your project and make it yours. When you create that ownership piece, it's so empowering for the kids 
And when you let them know it's it's okay for, sure, you can follow this project and have a perfect result, but that's not what we're looking for. Uh-huh. We're looking for, did you, did you think of something beyond that cookbook project? And did you explore your, your own questions and your own ideas? That's what we're after because that's where the innovation comes in. And that's where then that empowerment comes in as well. That's a great segue. So take me through what would be in your science fair. Is it a, I mean, I don't want to call it a kit. That sounds kind of, but your, your program, what's in the, your program. Well, there are actually two components of the program, actually three, three main components, three impactful components. So uh, one is actually, uh, we call them kits. So we actually, um, we, so there are a number of problems that we address through the programming. One is that equitable support structure for, for all students. So bringing that support structure into the class and empowering that teacher to inspire those students and give them the skills as opposed to individual parents having to do that at home, which is absolutely miserable for most parents anyway. <laughs> but, you know, it keeps the parents' egos out of the students' projects and it allows the students, it, it, it allows the students to, to really grow equally. So we, we provide every student um, at a grade level. So we're currently fourth, fifth, sixth grade. We provide every student at that grade level at the schools, um, their own kit. And we provide the, the teachers with professional development on how, to, how to, to teach the learning around these three projects. So each kit includes what's considered a scaffolded approach to um, building students' independence in um, their leadership of each of the three projects. So the first project is intended to bring all students to the same level of, okay, this is how you collect data. These are important things to do. And this is how you follow. The first project is actually half cookbook, half um, authentic. The second project takes everything they learned in the first project, and now they're doing authentic work on all those components and builds out other components. So for each project, between the three projects, the students are developing their skills to lead and so lead their own projects, come up with their own questions, Hmm. um, create their own experimental, draw their own experimental setup, you know, identify something that they're interested in, create a step-by-step procedure, um, and then by the end, they're doing all of that, plus they build out their communication skills and they, um, they present their projects. So a science fair project is really kind of that ultimate 21st century type of um, project-based learning experience, right? Because they're doing all of those essential communication skills and problem solving and critical thinking. And, um, and if they work as a team, then, then their collaboration skills as well. So, um, so there's the kit that we, we donate the kits and the support to the teachers so that all students get the same level of support in the classroom. 
and they don't need to rely on the support of the parents, which is a huge relief for a lot of parents, most parents. <laughs> then, then we bring them outside of the classroom and we challenge them to explore the science and engineering behind things in their everyday lives to build their own authentic science fair projects. So they might start with a cookbook recipe project, but again, it's through that science fair experience um, and engaging in their science fair where they're really building out their communication skills and also those um, authentic projects. And then, so that's the second part of the programming is taking them out of the classroom and exploring science all around them. And then the third part, an impactful component of the programming is actually part of the science fair as well. We engage diverse STEM skilled professionals with those students during their science fair so that students can see, oh, hey, she's an engineer. I can be an engineer too. And creating those identities and having those role models is absolutely essential in the elementary and middle school years. So, um, so, and it's as impactful for the students having that role model as it is for that STEM professional. And I wanna explain that a little bit because of our programming, it's, it's easy to see the impact on those children. Um, I can explain that, but what is potentially even more impactful to addressing these inequities is creating that awareness for that STEM professional. So just like with me, I mean, I'm hoping that people aren't as nutty as me as in ditching their careers and starting a nonprofit, but there is an awareness when they engage with students outside of their immediate community. You know, it's just like, a, you know, just everything's going on in the world. People are becoming more siloed into, mm -hmm. you know, more narrow communities. And it's very easy for, especially parents, you know, parents are known in elementary school to completely like dump their entire purpose into their kids. <laughs> um, being successful in elementary school and that starts to taper out in middle school. But when you're only engaging in your, your child's school, you're only engaging in that very immediate com community around you, which is great. You know, there's, there's no knocking that. That's, you know, this, this, that's amazing that, that parents can do that. But it's a privilege being able, for me to be able to take the time and sync myself with my level of expertise into my kid's school, that's a privilege of my, that, that I have, you know, as a parent. And it's also a privilege to all the kids in that school, which, which is great. But by not going beyond my, my kid's school, I'm basically, I was contributing to the systemic inequities in the early STEM learning because it's exactly that, that, you know, naturally as parents, you want to give your kids a leg up, right? You, you, want, you want to support them in their school and their education. And there's nothing wrong with that. 
Mm-hmm. But I think people need to be aware that not all students have that privilege. And that is really the core of the one of the core issues around this inequity and opportunity. These kids at, at these lower, these high need schools, they don't have these really fun after school STEM programs that cost, you know, you know, a hundred bucks you know, per couple of weeks or, you know, these summer camp enrichment programs that are like 400 bucks a week, right? They don't have, they don't have those opportunities. So I always like to encourage people to look at the school down the road that's out of their community and see what, what they can bring to that school, because the students at that, at those schools don't necessarily have the same privileges and it's because uh, it's it's purely economic, right? They just mm-hmm. don't they don't have the resources in their school that that uh, maybe their the students at their immediate community have at the school. They don't have the network. That's actually a big thing is network. You know, I can uh, I I'm, I think most people most parents can relate to. Oh, hey. Oh, you want to, you want to explore this? Oh, I can connect you. I have a friend who does that. I could connect you with them and, you know, you can go do an internship there, right? Um, There's this network privilege also that um, it's not just the money and the parents bringing resources into the schools, but it's the networks of those parents um, that come into those schools as well. So the big takeaway, if there's any one big takeaway for anybody that's listening is go beyond your immediate community and, and become more aware. And that's where this engagement in the science fair can happen. You know, we only serve the highest need schools and we give STEM professionals the opportunity to engage with the students at those schools. And, um, and I think there's, there, I, th- I think it sparks a change in a lot of people, whether it's the way they vote or you know, their decision to give to a nonprofit, whatever that nonprofit is, um, or help create that support structure for those kids, because it's obvious that that there's this inequity and, um, and yeah, these kids deserve as much of a chance. They're as capable you know, at both of these schools. This talent pool is the same. They're as capable, they're as inspired when given that opportunity. They just need the opportunity. They need that opportunity to be inspired. That's amazing. It's so very powerful. Going back to something you said about the um, when the professional goes into that classroom, and I've heard it, and you know, white man in America noted this is me saying this. <laughs> so, like when uh, Black Panther came out, and um, I heard actors and comedians and kids saying it was the first time that I saw somebody like me as a superhero on the big screen. And same thing that if there's, uh, you know, on the gender side of things that if a professional woman, say like an engineer goes into a classroom and it's like, 
wow, that person looks like me that did that. Again, it's the, the, the end point that they can perhaps envision now and see that, whether it's a, a woman astronaut or a person of color that's a professional tennis player thinking of the Williams sisters. Like, oh, I didn't, I can, they're playing tennis. I could play tennis. I could be an engineer. I could be an astronaut. And that's so very powerful as to just remove that either literal or figurative barrier from what they think they are or their path or where they could go. And I'm going to give you some marketing advice. I think your phrase of go beyond is that that could be something very easy and, a, and I'm picturing like a logo of like a rocket, right? <laughs> of course, uh-huh. <laughs> for people like how they could support the, the mission of what you're trying to do. And perhaps that could be something where it's so, so empowering where somebody down the road, like here's the nearest um, school in need to your home. Here's a STEM generation science fair kit. Just go beyond, go find the principal, go find the science teacher, go run a science fair for a class. Yeah. And, and even simple things like um, sharing their stories, right? So mm-hmm. even just having folks share their stories of what inspired, and actually that's another part of our programming that we're starting this year. Um, and we're offering to our sponsors. So much of our, our funding is actually by major cor- corporate sponsors. And so we engage their STEM skilled employees with students during their fair and give them that opportunity. Another, and because that um, identity is, is, it's important at any age, but really, especially at these ages, because students are making these decisions about their identities of who they are and can be. Because that's so important and so, so powerful and it's so simple, right? It's mm-hmm. simple for, for, for someone to go into a classroom and say, hey, you know, this is, this is what inspired me to explore STEM when I, or my career, whatever, science or engineering, when I was a kid. And this is why I love it now. And this is a number one tip for you to, for you in general. And we're creating these little mini video clips to share those with the students so that the teachers can share them with the students because, um, because it is really, that is just so, so powerful is that, that identity, just like with Black Panther, mm-hmm. so many things. Yeah. And I think the tendency is to look at the world and the things that need to be changed and become overwhelmed by it. What, what could I do? And it's something that, you know, my son and I talked about because he and I have a similar mindset where I think, um, what my one positive engineering trait was that perfection where, uh, and I'm not a horoscope guy, but I know enough about the astrology that I'll say I'm a recovering Virgo as well. Like that perfectionism, (laughs) (laughs) I can get over it. Like I notice like, like as, as we're talking, I'm trying to line up my coffee mug right on top of this circle on the coaster. And I keep (laughs) trying to get it because it's not quite right. But 
it's not bothering me. I can leave it alone. But that perfectionism of all or nothing, everyone or no one. And it's, yeah, you can't change the world, but you could change the, the school down the road. You could, you could help 30 kids as opposed yeah. to 30 million. And yeah. a little thing has a big impact. And you, you throw the pebble in the lake and it ripples. And it's a small thing that just based on momentum and connection that can do a great thing. And it's, this has got me fired up and inspired to um, do something like that. And yeah, so I want to start getting back involved in the board too. So if you'll have me back. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, we would love to. Yeah, you know, for for me, one of my biggest challenges is that communication piece, as I was sharing with you, because I, I dive right into, I, I, I'm always want to dive into the numbers and statistics. And, and for me, that's what really um, helps me understand the problem. But a lot of people that um, they start falling asleep when they hear that. So any sort of <laughs> help around communicating is super, super helpful. But back to your point, though, around, you know, there's, there's so there's so much right now, right? We're, and it's so easy just to kind of shut down and just say, I just, this is all just too much, right? Mm-hmm. But there are very simple, always look for the, the simple things, right? This, this simple act of being, being a role model is so incredibly powerful, so incredibly powerful. It could be five minutes of somebody's day and you could change a kid's life. And so just in general, I, I, I tend to try and think of, you know, what's the easiest, lowest hanging fruit for making the biggest impact mm-hmm. and how, how can we, how can we engage and um, spark an interest in people to engaging in solving a problem in a very simple way that goes a long, long way. And, and there's, there are so many things that people can do. It's just that it, it needs to be packaged simply for them so that they're not having to figure out how to do it all on their own, right? Just make, making something very simple that is structured for people to just hop right on and, and engage with is, I think is a key to making that just more accessible to, to making a change. Do one small thing. Oh, one small thing. Oh, Wendy, this has been incredible. I'm, I'm just uh, so excited for what you've done and, you know, just taking the chance and taking the, the risk of doing this. And you are, you are making a difference. And I'm just happy that I've met you and been happy to be a part of this. And where can people find you? Where can people find the, the kits and, and where can they get involved? Yeah. Um, so we're, uh, they can find us. Uh, our website is uh, stemgeneration.org, O-R-G, just all one word. Um, so on, uh, we are in the process of um, revamping our website. So there are uh, 
uh, yeah. So there, that's always that's a work me. in progress. Don't worry about the <laughs> website. <laughs> so, so there is opportunities to donate individual kits to students um, and engage um, as role models during during their fair. Um, the, and really, they can reach out to me I, at Wendy W E N D Y at Science Fair F A I R Fun F U N dot org. Science Fair Fund is the name of the programming. STEM Generation is the nonprofit. So they can reach me there and let me know. Do you wanna do you wanna engage in 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 these with these students and and make your impact that way? I, I would love to, I would love to hear from, from folks. So um, support as a volunteer or you know, financial, it all goes a long way. Yeah, I have an ask and a challenge to anybody listening that just if you are, even if you're not in the scientific background and you've got either time or resources to reach out to Wendy and grab a kit, go to a school near you or donate some money, donate some time because you won't change the world, but you'll change something and you have the ability. Yeah, it's, yep. Thanks. Thanks for that. And, you know, and just again, with COVID these, again, these children are, are impact, you know, we're all impacted Mm -hmm. in a big way, but these children, they're really impacted so much more and they're struggling with a lot more. Well said. Wendy, thank you so much. Um, This has been just an absolute joy. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. I, Really enjoyed having the conversation and thanks for the opportunity. This has been great.